This is the Trip Doctor Podcast. I'm Arizona State University tourism professor Evan Jordan. If you're interested in learning more about being an intelligent traveler, head over to the website at gotripdoctor.com where you can find travel planning resources, a blog about all things travel, and a traveler personality quiz. Last week, Michigan became the 10th state in the U.S. to legalize marijuana for recreational use. As the first state in the Midwest to do so, it's likely to become a popular destination for marijuana tourists. Marijuana tourism has become big business for many other states that have legalized recreational use over the past several years, and researchers are struggling to keep up with what those legal changes mean for residents, tourists, and the industry. My guest today is Dr. Lorraine Taylor, an assistant professor at Fort Lewis College in Colorado. She recently published a study titled Defining Marijuana Tourism, and has been doing research on marijuana tourism in Colorado for the last four plus years. Dr. Taylor's research has revealed a great deal about the impacts of marijuana tourism and just who a marijuana tourist is. The results may be a little bit surprising. I think marijuana tourists get a bad rap of being like stoner hippies. And while a lot of my uh, sample was actually young and they were mostly male, um, I there were a lot of old people too. And I think that that was something that was really important that came out of it is that I saw distributions of people into their 70s who were coming from out of state to purchase marijuana. People have much different motivations and reasons for wanting to do it. And I just, I think it's important to recognize that that market is is not flat, that there's, you know, it's dynamic and uh, there's different interests, motivations and needs that those people have. And so you can't just call a group marijuana tourists and think that they're all going to want the same thing or be motivated the same way. Okay, so I always like to start off and ask my interviewees a little bit about their own personal travel experience because I think that really informs our research, our personal travel. You know, some people will do hike to, uh, hut-to-hut hikes in cottages across the Alps. Some people really want to go to Dollywood. You know, other people want to go sit on a beach in the Caribbean. So tell us a little bit about you as a traveler. Like, what is your perfect trip? Sure. Thank you for asking. Um, a little bit of background on me and why I think I ended up in a career that's related to travel, my mom always joked that we don't have nice furniture and we don't have nice jewelry, but we go on nice vacations. And so my whole life, it was really a value that was instilled in me and my family um, that we wanted to spend our time and any extra money on and getting away and getting out of our bubble and seeing what else is out there. And so um, I think I've been to 17 different countries at this point. And at the top of my list right now, um, I'm really interested in Iceland, both because it has amazing attractions, but also because there's some really interesting stuff going on um, with the sustainability of that destination. And so I'd say that's probably at the top of my list. I have not made it to Asia or Africa yet. And so on my um, continental bucket list, if you will. And so I would say those three areas are sort of my top at this point, I have uh, spent quite a bit of time in Europe and some time in Central and South America, um, and I think it's time to branch out. And so that's my goal moving forward in the next few years. 
So is that something you look for? Are you looking for sustainability, like interesting places related to sustainability? Or does that, you know, did that kind of come later? What are you looking for in a destination, I guess? I guess my interest in sustainability is really just uh, being aware of what's going on with over tourism and uh, like Iceland, for example, has some issues with lack of infrastructure and it's become really popular really quickly. And I would like to have boots on the ground to see what that looks like as a traveler. I guess I'm just like really curious about uh, what's going on in places. And I like to see good examples of sustainability, but I'm also really interested in the ugly stuff and the places that aren't doing well or um, are performing pretty poorly when it comes to sustainability. And so I'm curious about those two, just as a naturally curious person to see what's going on out there and be able to talk about it in classes and inform students about those examples. It's really nice to have firsthand experience. So do you have a place that's like your favorite place that you've ever been before that like you kind of You've come home and you still think about it and might want to go back like multiple times. I my heritage is Italian. And so I've been to Italy twice. And my first visit to Italy, we had uh, dinner at my distant cousin's house. And that was pretty magical. And then last year I went to Italy and we actually went to the area where my dad's family is from. And it was my aunt's 100th birthday. And so I think there were 32 people from the United States that went over and then over 100 Italians who were there. And so we were in Ruvo di Puglia, which is sort of near Bari in the southeast uh, part of Italy. And that was pretty special. Uh, And so even though I have all these grandiose destinations that I'm really interested in, I also really liked the connection to my heritage and you know, being able to not feel silly when you don't know the language or it was just it was much easier to communicate with people that had that familial connection. And so if I could go back anywhere, I would go back there and spend more time with my family. And Italy's just amazing. But to be with people who like really wanted to make it a special experience, that was pretty amazing. And that's such a different travel experience, right? To go to a place where even if you haven't met them before, you know somebody. Or you have some sort of connection and they can show you around and they can give you that like local experience. Absolutely. And that's totally different than if you were to go to Iceland and and you don't know anybody. And I think that's sort of where the concept of tour guides came from is that they can show you their version of the place. Mm -hmm. And And have an insider. Yeah. And so have you ever read anything about i know there's some new services out there like um airbnb just created one i think it's called trips where people can be tour guides um and show visitors their version of their place i mean i know a lot of airbnb hosts sort of do that anyways right well that's really aligned with their living like a local philosophy i didn't know about the tour guides but i did know that they started to do attractions you know now that i'm obsessed with italy and i just saw that Airbnb has like a learn to make pasta with the Italian grandma attraction. And so you book your Airbnb and then it recommends this attraction in that neighborhood. And there happens to be this Italian grandma who will teach you to make pasta. And it's like 125 euro a person. It is not cheap, but this grandma is crushing it. She's got like all five star reviews. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's I mean, that's such a just a cool connection to be able to, you know, meet somebody see things the way that they see them, have them teach you things. 
I really like that that's kind of the direction that tourism has headed in recently with the sharing economy. And I know I've talked about this in some previous podcast episodes. It's not all sunshine and butterflies in terms of the impacts of those things, but it's definitely providing some cool experiences that in the past I don't think were possible. Right. My family growing up was like a 100% Marriott family, and now we're predominantly staying at Airbnbs when we travel, especially in Europe. If you're trying to really connect to a place, um, it's really safe. The hosts are really helpful. Most of them speak English or at least have ways that they can translate for you. And we've had really great experiences with Airbnb recently. And so I'm also aware of a lot of the issues with Airbnb, but from the traveler perspective or somebody who's looking to really make a connection, I think it can be beat. And Europe has a very long history of not Airbnbs, but bed and breakfast, period, right? I mean, this has been something Mm -hmm. that's going on there for a very long time. And I feel like Airbnb really capitalized on just providing a method to connect travelers with those people that wanted to be hosts. Right. So you mentioned your... Your family was a a Marriott family, but there was a strong emphasis on travel. Like that was the thing that your family said, we're going to we're going to spend our money on this, those experiences, you know, see the world, that sort of thing. Did that influence you to become a travel researcher? Like, how did you get to be where you are now? So I got my bachelor's and master's from the University of Illinois in advertising, actually. I was in the communications college there, and I was pretty burnt out. I did uh, both degrees back-to-back, and then it was right uh, after um, September 11th, basically, I graduated the following year. And so the advertising agencies got hit really hard and basically weren't hiring. And so I was like too type A to do nothing, but I wasn't really ready to jump into any, you know, major career, have to make a big move. And so I took an internship with the Walt Disney World Company in Orlando. And I went down there sort of just for fun for seven months after I finished my master's. And I was a lifeguard for the Yacht and Beach Club resort down there. And like I said, I I sort of did it just to fill some time before I was ready to jump into my big advertising career. And then that never happened. I stayed in Orlando at Disney. And then I actually worked for Marriott um, in Florida. And then I transferred to South Carolina with Marriott. Um, And then I left Marriott and I went to an independent property and also in South Carolina. And so that was about seven years that I was in the hotel industry and I loved it. But my favorite part of my job was training and developing my staff. I got I really just started to lose a lot of patience for customers and customer complaints. And so I thought to myself, if I'm going to be working, you know, every Christmas and every Sunday forever, is this really what I want to have people complain about really silly things? And I said, my favorite part is really developing my staff. And so I had been asked to stay for my PhD when I left Illinois seven years earlier. And at the time I was really burnt out and wasn't ready to do that. But then seven years into the hotel industry, I thought maybe I could do this in the tourism field. And so that's how I found Clemson and then went back to school. And I'm really excited to be on the uh, side of education as opposed to the side that has to deal with the complaining customers. Now I just help train my students on how to deal with those complaining customers. But that's sort of my story and how I ended up here. It's certainly, if you had asked me the day that I started at Walt Disney World, if I would end up here, I, I wouldn't 
have believed that'd be my path, but um, it's been pretty cool. I love the industry and my students here are pretty amazing and they're doing great things in the industry too. And so I see my value to give back to the industry is really um, developing and training future professionals who are going to go out there and make a big contribution. It really sounds like over the course of those years in the industry, you kind of fine-tuned exactly what you wanted to do. And it's very cool that you were able to then go back to school, get the qualifications necessary to do the thing that you really wanted to do. And now you're doing that. Right. I feel like that's not super common for people to be able to identify that very clearly and then do something about it to make it happen and have that position for the rest of their lives, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't say that it was, there wasn't a lot of like forethought that went into that. I mean, I definitely, I applied to Clemson after the deadline because it was like, I just had this bad day at the resort and I had all these people complaining and I went home and I just was thinking like, I don't want to do this anymore. What do I really want to do? And so I actually applied to Clemson after the deadline and um, I begged and they let me in and um, the rest is history. But I, I wouldn't, I don't want your listeners to think that it was all that calculated. It really was just in the moment you make the best decisions with the information you have. And I really couldn't be happier. It's hard for me when sometimes you'll be with friends and you'll have friends who were complaining about their jobs and I don't have a whole lot to complain about. I mean, I certainly have days that aren't perfect, but um, on the whole, I really enjoy what I do. My students are amazing. Um, my community that I teach tourism in is amazing. And so um, it's a, a, a pretty lucky story that I ended up where I ended up. Yeah, I always tell people, there are very few days that I wake up and I think, you know, I don't really want to go to work today. That doesn't really happen very often, which is um, a nice thing to be able to say. Right. We're really lucky. Absolutely. We are. So you said you went back to school to be a person who educates. And right. you also mentioned that you really like taking your travel experiences and bringing them into the classroom. So how did you... From from advertising to tourism, how did you formulate what you wanted to do research on? Because eventually we're going to talk about marijuana tourism, which is what this episode is all about today. But how did you get to studying marijuana tourism? Because that's not what you started doing, right? No, I was really more generally interested in consumer behavior. And my research and my dissertation at Clemson were more about decision making and you know, in the process of choosing a vacation, what is it that makes people choose or they choose and either do repeat trips or are they going to new and novel destinations and, and how invested are they in the planning process? And that really was where my interests lied. Um, I, it was, it was a, a very fast transition from when I moved to Colorado to when I started to pick up um, the topic of marijuana tourism. And so I started here in August of 2013, and so this was after Colorado had voted to legalize, but before the stores were open. So the recreational shops opened January 1st of 2014, and so I had just like a couple of months to get up to speed on what was happening. And so in Colorado, we have a great resource in our Colorado Governor's Tourism Conference, and it happened to be in Telluride that year, and it was maybe a month and a half after I started here. 
And to be honest, the tourism industry was in a panic because everybody was freaking out about what was going to happen um, with marijuana tourists and tourism and and would it be a market that would have an impact and were we going to proactively be recruiting marijuana tourists or what would this do to our family-friendly market? And uh, so at this governor's conference about a month and a half after I had moved to Colorado, um, everybody had a lot of questions and nobody had any answers. And at the time, the state was really resistant to putting any money towards marijuana, and that included researching marijuana. And so we really just didn't have any answers. And so I'm looking around this room with hundreds of people who are all stressed about this topic, and I was thinking, somebody needs to ask these questions. And it turned out that maybe that somebody was going to be me. And so I went back to my school and I applied for the Institutional Review Board to make sure I had the ethical uh, backing to do this kind of research. And that was uh, harder to get through that process than when I was asking in my other research just about how people make decisions about where they're going to go on vacation. And so I was sort of went through the gauntlet to make sure that the research about marijuana tourism would be ethical. Um, and then I just started asking questions and I started Uh, with a qualitative study where I was talking to the owners and managers of the stores. And then we got into a quantitative study where we were doing surveys of the customers at the recreational marijuana stores. And so that all happened. It started very early in 2014. So I had no intention of studying marijuana when I moved to Colorado, but it just, I, as a naturally curious person and I wanted you to know what the answers were and nobody else was asking the questions. And so that's sort of how I jumped into this topic. So you've been studying this for about four, four and a half years now. And you that's just right. recently published a paper called Defining Marijuana Tourism. And this this has sort of become like the marijuana tourism paper that sort of summarizes, all right, this is what mar- marijuana tourism is. Here's the important issues that are going with marijuana tourism. Uh, so can you tell us, like, what are the things that you found over the last four, four and a half years related to marijuana tourism? Like, all right, everybody's asking these questions and you came up with some answers. So what are they? Right. Um, I would say that a lot of people have strong opinions about marijuana, and I am not one of those people. I really have very weak opinions about marijuana in general, which probably makes me a fairly good researcher for this topic. And I really approach this, as we all must do as researchers, as a neutral observer of a phenomenon. And I really just wanted to know what was happening. And I I kind of think that that was a helpful approach as opposed to wanting to prove or disprove that marijuana tourism was a positive thing. Um, I would say that the most interesting thing and really the the foundation of this Defining Marijuana Tourism article was about the market not being homogenous and how many people uh, who are marijuana tourists have very different motivations from other marijuana tourists. And that's really what I was trying to get across in that article. A lot of uh, other definitions required that a marijuana tourist either choose Colorado or another destination for the sole purpose of purchasing marijuana, or at least having it be one of their primary reasons. And I found that those people existed. I think it was about 40% 
of my sample said that they were coming uh, for marijuana as a primary reason, but that means a lot of people were not coming to Colorado for marijuana as their primary reason. And Colorado has some really awesome things to do. And it seemed that marijuana was just one of the many things to do here as opposed to being a primary driver. And so that was one of the main uh, contributions, I think, of this recent paper is to say that you can be a marijuana tourist and not even plan to purchase marijuana when you're planning your trip to Colorado or any other destination. And so that's one thing that I think was a major contribution. Um, I also think that the, as I mentioned, the target markets are not homogenous. I think marijuana tourists get a bad rap of being like stoner hippies. And while a lot of my uh, sample was actually young and they were mostly male, um, I there were a lot of old people too. And I think that that was something that was really important that came out of it is that I saw distributions of people into their 70s who were coming from out of state to purchase marijuana. People have much different motivations and reasons for wanting to do it. And I just, I think it's important to recognize that that market is is not flat, that there's, you know, it's dynamic and uh, there's different interests, motivations and needs that those people have. And so you can't just call a group marijuana tourists and think that they're all going to want the same thing or be motivated the same way. So this all kind of goes back to your expertise in consumer behaviors. You're no longer wondering why do people choose a destination? You're wondering why do people why are people marijuana tourists or what types of people are marijuana tourists? Right. I'm really fascinated by consumer behavior. And I like that the more research I do, the more I realize that not everybody decides things the same way that I decide things. And so that's why I think it's important to ask those questions. I don't think that you can look at any group of tourists and make assumptions on, on why they ended up in a place that they ended up. And so that's why I think it was important to ask those questions. And as far as I know, there are plenty of people who are doing research on this, and I fully support that so we can build the body of knowledge. But I don't know of any other study that had clipboards outside of the pot shops and were asking questions to the people who were actually customers in those stores. And so that's another uh, area that I think that my research has added value is that we really know what people who are really in the stores are saying, because that's where we were when we were asking the questions. Did you run, I know you said you you did everything above board as as all university researchers are required to by going through our institutional review boards. What are the ethical issues that came up when you were going through that process? Like, I would imagine there's some people who don't want to answer questions outside of a marijuana shop. So uh, we definitely had to make sure that people were aware of the any costs or risks to them. But I'll be honest, I had a really high response rate. Um, we had very few people who were at the recreational stores who chose not to participate when they were approached. And so that was actually really nice. They were really supportive of the research and wanted to make sure that uh, since it was being done scientifically, that um, they could contribute to that. The IRB was really concerned about confidentiality and the ability to identify the people who participated in the study. And so originally my uh, survey had pretty specific demographic questions like your actual age, your actual occupation. Um, and the IRB board was worried that if I had someone's zip code, because that's how I 
determined whether they were a tourist or not. I had them put in their zip code for their home residence. If I had someone's zip code, their gender, their actual age, and their uh, occupation, they were worried that I'd be able to find, you know, a 32-year-old nurse from Oklahoma. And so um, that being said, I had to have much more general categories. So we had age ranges and I had general occupation categories and things like that. So it would be harder to identify people who participated in the study. Actually, one of the reviewers on IRB pushed back and said that wouldn't it be possible that, you know, the police in Oklahoma could ask me for my data uh, to be able to see if, you know, that nurse from Oklahoma was purchasing marijuana when she came to visit Colorado. And so that never happened, by the way. I never got contacted by the police. But that was a concern because no one had really done this research before and to know um, what the lasting impacts were going to be. And so that was an interesting thing that came up in that process. And I would imagine the the question of legality from the federal perspective versus the state perspective. I mean, I'm sure that's what that reviewer is worried about. And and states, you know, it seemed like under the Obama administration, there was a very hands off kind of approach. And then with the change to the Trump administration, everybody wasn't really sure what was going to happen. And it's, right. it seems like the status quo has kind of been maintained. Is that correct? I would agree with that. I would say, you know, if you had asked me this two years ago, there would be a higher degree of uncertainty about what would happen with the Trump administration. So uh, cannabis is still a class one. Uh, it's classified as a class one drug uh, at the federal level. Um, and Colorado and nine other states now are, are, are managing it internally at the state level. But there's always a threat that something could come down from the federal level. Um, the more momentum that the states are getting and the more positive impacts we're seeing with things like tax revenue uh, being used for roads and schools and things that we need tax revenue for, I don't know that there's, you know, a serious concern that the feds could come down and change what's being done within the state level. But I I think people are operating as if it would be a, it would be a major shift in the direction of what's going on with recreational marijuana if that were to happen. And it would be really hard to convince. And I mean, now we have 20% of our states that have legalized recreational marijuana. And so, I mean, that's pretty significant to be able to reverse that would be really tricky. Absolutely. So you mentioned positive impacts and I'm sure they're not all positive, but right. what does the, what does the research say about perceptions of the impacts of marijuana tourism. Have you done any studies on that or have those been done by other people? And kind of what does the body of knowledge say? Are people generally saying that this is a good thing or is it mixed or is it negative? Uh, I would say it's still pretty mixed, but it has been uh, more in favor than it was in 2012 when the vote happened. And so one of my colleagues, Sue Kang, who's at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, she and I were in touch back around that 2013-2014 time period because we were both doing very early research in this area. But neither Durango, where I live, nor Fort Collins, where she lives, had stores that were open on uh, January 1st in 2014. And so we had to figure out how to ask other questions 
when we couldn't uh, be at recreational stores. And so I was asking owners and managers questions as they approached this transition of opening these rec stores. And she actually asked local residents about their perceptions of um, marijuana and the legalization. And what we found was that uh, it roughly, you know, most of the areas in Colorado uh, approved it but not by a huge margin. Most of them were like a 55 to 45 vote in each county. Um, and then within each county, each city actually makes a choice about whether to legalize marijuana. The town that I live in is actually 18 miles east of Durango, and we just voted last night against having marijuana in our town. And so it's approved at the state level, but then each region within the state can make decisions about um, whether or not to have stores. And so we have found that since 2012, when the initial vote went through, that more people are in favor of marijuana. And I think that has a lot to do with, um, as I mentioned, the tax revenue. And then also, it was really ugly for a couple of years with trying to navigate how to regulate it and what regulation should be in place. And the store owners that survived sort of that really tough time are doing a good job now. And they're responsible business owners. They contribute to the community. They're employing local people. And so I think the value of those stores is being recognized. And so we see more people in favor of it than back when we voted in 2012. So Colorado was one of the early adopters. And you just mentioned, it's, it's sort of fascinating that this happens on multiple levels that individual communities have a choice over whether they decide if they want recreational marijuana shops or not. But last night, as we were just mentioning, the 10th state, Michigan, which is my home state, just voted to legalize recreational marijuana. And that'll take effect, uh, I think, in about a month or so. Do you think that Colorado and other early adopting states like Washington have really sort of laid the foundation for how that transition works? Like, is it easier for other states now to do so because they have some evidence of here's what actually happens when you do this? Yes, I do think so. I absolutely feel that the shop owners, when we first opened here in Colorado, were the guinea pigs in that process. And it was the regulations were changing constantly because they would think something was a good idea and then realize that there were negative uh, side effects to those decisions. And so um, we really sort of dialed in what works, what's safe, uh, how to keep people um, consuming in ways that don't have adverse health effects and all those types of things we sort of learned from our mistakes. And so luckily now other states don't have to make those same mistakes because we found out what doesn't work um, and put in new regulations to try to support this as a sustainable um, industry. And so I do think that states are learning from us. I also know that states are stealing our intellectual capital. And so I had a student who lived sort of uh, in a town that's probably about 40 minutes from where the school is located, but she and her fiance were involved in the industry and they were recruited from a very wealthy person in Massachusetts that wanted to invest in marijuana when they chose to legalize. And they were getting regular job offers from people in Massachusetts to move there to try to help build the industry in Massachusetts. And so not only is it just our rules and regulations on how things are going, but I also see that 
um, the resources and knowledge that we have are being borrowed by those other states so they can figure out how to do it well. That's just fascinating that, you know, it's it's become big enough that, you know, you, you have like headhunters out there, you know, head headhunting people in the marijuana uh, tourism industry. That it's that it's big enough that it has come to that already um, is kind of fascinating to me. And it's interesting for you also as an educator to know what it's like to sit in student advising sessions and, you know, they tell you what they want to do with their life and you try to be helpful. And then it's just been so incredible here to have students sit in an advising meeting and say, you know, I want to run a grow operation or I want to do something with edibles or I teach in a business school, actually. And so, I mean, there's a lot of business opportunities in cannabis. And so that's just really different as an educator to try to map those career paths because it's such a new career path. We don't have a lot of precedent on how to climb the ladder in cannabis. But that's something that I'm trying to educate myself on so I can support the students who are interested in that. One other thing that I was wondering about is, uh, have you gotten a sense, and maybe there's no research on this, maybe this is an area for future study, but I haven't seen anything on, other than anecdotally, perceptions of, from from law enforcement as to how legalization has changed their job. Um, you know, are, are they worrying about more operating under the influence types of scenarios? I know that there's been a lot of tests that are being developed now to test for THC in people's system because it's still illegal to drive, like if you consume marijuana, um, as it should be because it's dangerous. But it seems like that's sort of a bit of a quagmire. Have you gotten any perceptions? Is there any research out there on that? I am not aware of research with law enforcement. I do know that Colorado is being sued by Nebraska at one point, and I think the lawsuit was thrown out. But Nebraska was saying that because Colorado had legalized marijuana, that they had to increase their police force, especially on uh, border control and roads that were going in and out across the border. And so, um, but that's not even within Colorado. That was something that was happening outside of. I I'm not really sure if their jobs have changed a whole lot. Um, I think that the ability to test for THC makes it really tricky as opposed to just catching somebody on a DUI. I do know that um, in the medical field that there was an increase in uh, ER visits that were cannabis related or sort of right after uh, legalization. So in 2014, they found an increase in visits to emergency rooms based on cannabis. And a lot of that was uh, overdoses from uh, edibles. And we've actually changed the potency of edibles at this point. There's different regulations for that. So that's happening less frequently. But what was interesting about the increase in the emergency room visits was they weren't sure if it was actually that people were over consuming cannabis or was it that because it was legal, people felt like they could take their friends to the ER when they wouldn't normally have taken them in for medical treatment, even if they needed it. And so it's just really hard to know um, because the data will always be fuzzy on a before and after when something is illegal to legal to know what the differences are. Um, but you're right to say that there's certainly an impact on law enforcement. And I, I would that's actually thank you for the suggestion for future research. Maybe I'll look into that. <laughs> I, I always have a lot of good ideas. I don't necessarily execute them all, but 
you're more than welcome to to take that and run with it because I think it's I mean there's so many fascinating areas because like you've said it's so new we just don't know things and there's such a deficit of knowledge that we really need to catch up right and I will point out that with law enforcement it is directly related to tourism because there just simply are not that many legal places for tourists to consume their purchases and so as a resident, if you go into a shop in Colorado, you go home um, and consume in your own house or you're on private property, I mean, it's totally legal. If you're a tourist and you come and you're staying in a hotel, um, it's very likely that it's a non-smoking hotel. And a lot of our chain hotels um, have no smoking policies that sort of uh, will override any legalization of marijuana policies. And so... Uh, there just aren't a lot of places for people to consume legally. And so they do foolish things like consume in their car or consume in a public park or consume at our ski resorts. And all of those places um, are illegal. And so there is definitely an overlap with law enforcement and what's going on with tourists simply because we haven't provided adequate places for people to legally consume their legally purchased marijuana. Yeah, I was actually reading an article that Las Vegas is dealing with some similar issues and they're proposing to build like lounges, um, which is kind of another business opportunity, I guess. And I think they got that idea from Colorado because that's what Colorado has been starting to do. Is that true? That is true. There are uh, the front range in the Denver area are definitely further ahead than we are in Southwest Colorado down here in terms of offering options for legal consumption. And so there's the lounge idea. There's also Um, like tour guide buses that have um, sort of like a limousine, how they roll the window down. And so the driver is blocked off from any cannabis that's being consumed in the back, but they'll have tour buses that will drive people around where they can legally consume in the back of the bus. So in Denver, there are tour companies that have uh, partnerships with their local hotels and the hotels are 420 friendly. And what that means is that the tour company will actually bring a clean and sanitized vaporizer to the hotel. And when that person checks into the hotel, they'll get their room key and their vaporizer and they'll bring it up to the room. They can consume. There's no adverse effects in the smell of the room or any damage to the uh, carpeting or the wallpaper like it does with uh, regular cigarette smoke even or, or, or marijuana smoke. And so this is an opportunity for partnerships to where we realize that there's a need for the visitors to have legal and safe places to consume their products. Um, And there are companies that are figuring out easier ways for them to do that. You know, Las Vegas, I think, is really fascinating because, uh, I mean, you can just drink walking up and down the strip in Las Vegas and nobody really bothers you. And so the enforcement in an environment like that is going to be really interesting. But I'm a huge proponent of providing safe places for people to consume their legal purchases. Sure, absolutely. So if you are somebody who is intending to be a marijuana tourist or is a serendipitous marijuana tourist and you end up in a place like Colorado where you can legally purchase and consume recreational marijuana, do you have any like tips for people to be intelligent marijuana tourists like what would you say would be you know your top things that somebody should do in order to be safe in order to stay legal in order to have a positive experience 
I would say that one thing that really impressed me in my interviews with the shop owners and managers is how much they see themselves as educators. And so I think it's really helpful uh, to ask questions. We find that at the, for example, the Durango Welcome Center, very occasionally we'll get questions about where do I purchase marijuana? Where am I allowed to consume marijuana? Because it's like a government entity and the people there maybe not as approachable. And so just anecdotally, I have students who work in liquor stores or gas stations and they get approached all the time with these questions about where do I go? Where do I smoke? Those types of things. And so I think asking the locals is important, but the people who are working at the stores really want you to have a good experience. It's in their best interest for you to be satisfied with your purchases and come back and make purchases again on your next visit. And so we have resources if you ask for them um, on how to be safe, what the rules are, how um, not to get in trouble. There's a lot of uh, issues with public versus private consumption that make it tricky. And I think I think just asking the right questions. There's also a lot of websites that are really helpful. So one of the findings in my research was that uh, local people were more likely to use word of mouth as an information source to choose a shop, while uh, visitors were more likely to use internet as their information source for choosing a shop. And so uh, using the websites that are available to you, not only to identify where you want to shop, but also uh, to look at what the current rules are, because like I said, the regulations change a lot and you need to be aware of what they are so that you don't get in trouble. And then last but not least, my advice would be don't over purchase because you can't take it with you when you go. Um, right now, there's no way to legally take cannabis out of Colorado once you've purchased it in Colorado. And we have found that people get really excited when they go to the store and they over purchase um, and they're not able to consume all of their purchases during their visit. And then um, they're left with ethical decisions about whether or not they want to take it across border or try to sneak it in the airplane. And I don't recommend any of those things. And so my better advice would be to under purchase. And then if you consume everything you bought, then go back and make another purchase. But we have found issues with, you know, bags of products being left in rental cars or, um, people will leave edibles as tips for housekeepers in the hotels and people are just simply over purchasing and they're unable to consume all of their purchases before they leave. So my last uh, my last question to you is where so Michigan just legalized last night because we had our midterm elections. Where do you see the next places to legalize? Do you know who's putting it on the ballot and and when do you think it's going to happen for other states? You know, I'd, I would be guessing too much if I were to predict actual states, but my best guess is that many of the states that have uh, legalized medical marijuana will likely be considering legalizing recreational marijuana simply because it's been at least supported and accepted by that community enough to support medical marijuana. My guess is that we'll see more than just, I think it was two states, North Dakota with Michigan last night for our 2018 election. My guess is that the 2020 election could have as many as, you know, a half a dozen new states looking to legalize recreational marijuana. I have heard that states might wait for a presidential election year because they expect that the voter turnout will be higher and also that younger voters um, 
will be more likely to vote in a presidential election. And so it wouldn't surprise me if we see about maybe five or six of the states that have existing medical marijuana uh, are looking to legalize recreational marijuana as well, simply because, as I mentioned, it's been accepted and supported uh, by their voters in the past. Well, Lorraine, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. This has been a fascinating discussion of marijuana tourism. Thank you for having me. I fully support everyone who is interested in researching this, adding to our body of knowledge.